Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Hey everybody, Chase Will. Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Today I'm joined by Bram Stoker award-winning author Jeff Strand. You definitely have heard of him. He is one of the best authors out there. Comedic gold, relentlessly funny all the time. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. And today we're talking about your favorite movie, Shaun of the Dead. If anyone yes. hasn't seen that, uh, you need to go watch it now because it is one of the best ones. I can definitely see why you like it. <laughs> yeah, it is my all-time favorite horror movie, my all-time favorite comedy, my all-time favorite horror comedy, and all-time favorite movie. So it covers everything. Uh, is that a movie you saw as soon as it came out, or what was your experience in finding it? Well, it came out in uh, the UK a few months before it hit the United States. So I'd heard all the hype. So I saw it its first day in wide release in the United States, but that was after months and months of, this is the greatest horror comedy of all time. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, prove it. Because Shaun of the Dead is kind of a stupid title. <laughs> so it's like, you're going to need to prove to me that this movie isn't just some stupid zombie parody. And it wasn't. I was amazed at how good it was. And I went back to see it again immediately. Then uh, I was living in Tampa, Florida, and then a hurricane hit, which shut down the theater. Okay. So I didn't get to see it a third time in the theaters. And I was just really upset about that because I loved it. So. I have to go with second time to the charm then. Couldn't yeah. do a third time. <laughs> I can definitely see why you like it because it's kind of like your work where it's really, really funny, but it's also got a lot of heart to it. And I think that's what I, I admire most about your work is every story I've read, the characters are well-developed. It's not just joke, joke, joke. It's, you know, you get to know these people and what makes them tick and, you know, their right. personal lives. And I, again, I can definitely see why this is your favorite. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene at the end of the movie that is really funny, scary, and emotionally resonant. It's just like everything all in one intense moment. So Awesome. Yeah. Um, so for anybody who hasn't seen this, I'll do a quick rundown. Just read off the uh, basic premise here. Sean, a 30-something loser with a dull, e easy existence. I am screwing up already. When he's not working at the electronic store, he lives with his slovenly best friend, Ed, Nick Frost, in a small flat at the outskirts of London. The only unpredictable element in his life is his girlfriend, Liz, who wishes desperately for Sean to grow up and be a man. When the town is inexplicably overrun with zombies, Sean must rise to the occasion and protect both Liz and his mother. So again, I'm hoping everyone's seen this. If you haven't, uh, spoilers. There are going to be spoilers. <laughs> if you haven't, just pause the podcast. Yes. Take 92 or 93 minutes to watch the movie, then come right back. Yes. Believe me, it's worth skipping over Boba Fett or whatever else you're streaming right now. You can yeah. spare time for this movie. <laughs> so uh, what was your favorite scene in this? What would you say is the best part? It's pretty much just one great scene after another, but the one that stands above them all is where Sean, it's it's two scenes with a payoff. So it is the first scene of him wandering sort of hungover through the streets of London of his neighborhood, one long tracking shot, and then the exact same shot repeated during um, the zombie apocalypse the next morning with him going through the exact same thing he does every morning, not realizing that London has been overrun by zombies. So just the oblivious walk. The second time he does the oblivious walk is, I think, one of the best scenes in any movie and definitely <laughs> the best scene in Shaun of the Dead. I just love how long it takes him to realize something's wrong. Because <laughs> right, you 
watch the scene. The first time I saw the movie, you wait for the punchline where he realized what's happening. And there isn't one. He just returns <laughs> to his flat and everything's fine. And then later they discover it, but he goes with the entire unbroken shot, slipping on blood, just no awareness whatsoever. It was brilliant. What's that line that everyone quotes? It's like, you know, let's just go to the bar, have a pint, wait for all this to blow over. Right. We'll go to the Winchester, have a pint, wait for this all to blow over. That's their attitude through the whole movie. And <laughs> Yeah, those guys are some of my favorite actors, too. They also did, uh, was it Hot Fuss? Was that what it was? Hot Fuzz, um, The World's End, and the show Spaced. World's End was one that really resonated because I was watching that and I think it was in my late 20s I saw it. And I was like, this is too personal. <laughs> it's all about like not wanting to grow up. Yeah, I got to see that as a sneak preview. So they did it as a, they did all three of the movies. They showed Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and then like the United States premiere of um, World's End. And it's interesting because it's a science fiction movie, but the non-science fiction parts are so good that once the aliens show up, you're kind of like, no, wait a minute. I was into the story about these guys trying to recreate their pub crawl. Yeah. And other you're, movies you're have tried to uh, emulate that. There was a movie a couple years ago. It had uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, what was that one? The Christmas one. Um, the oh, night before. Uh, right. It seemed like it tried to emulate that same feeling, but I don't think you can do quite as well as they did on it because right. that they perfected it. It was all about a guy's trying to say, you know, he's still into this tradition thing we did, but we're growing up. We have lives going on. Yeah. But, I, you know, you're so into the characters that you forget that it's going to be a sci-fi movie. And then once it has, has that abrupt shift, you're like, whoa, wasn't even seeing that. And I, honestly, I would have been perfectly happy if it was just, you know, the guys trying to recreate the pub crawl. Yeah. Oh, was there a cast and crew um, talk back afterward or anything when you saw it? Uh, no, there was a very brief um, introduction with Nick Frost, Edgar Wright, and uh, Simon Pegg. But it was like a 15-second introduction to each of the movies. And then, so there wasn't a Q&A or anything. Oh, bummer. Dude, I would love to get his thoughts on that. Like, some of my favorite actors, honestly. Did you see a movie Pirate Radio with them in it a while ago? Or uh, The Boat That Rocked? No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, my God. You got to check it out. It's like one of the one of the best. If you like rock and roll and Beatles and that whole mania time, it's I do. hilarious. So anyway, uh, changing lanes here to go to your writing. You recently won the Bram Stoker Award. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. What was didn't, that like? I know it's a very generic question, but. I didn't see it coming because, you know, I've lost four times in the past and I was prepared to lose a fifth time. I, I'm very analytical about this. So three of the previous times I said, I don't have a chance in hell. You know, I looked at the competition, say it's just, it's not going to happen. And people, oh, you never know. No, no, I know. You can look at it and objectively say, I'm not going to win. Then the fourth time, I was like, okay, looking at the list, I think I have a 20% shot. And then I didn't win. But I thought, you know, there's no reason I can't have a one in five shot. I can't be one of the five nominees who wins. So this time, I was like, I'm downgrading. I think, I'm not saying I don't have a chance in hell. But I've got maybe a 10% shot. I had a pretty good idea of who was going to win. And then, you know, they read my name and I had thought about what I was, I didn't write down a speech. I had thought about what I was going to say. I had a very clever speech planned in my head. As soon as I heard my name, it vanished. Yeah. And so I just walked up there, sort of fumbled through a very quick, you know, it may not have been a great speech, but it was a quick one. So I didn't, you know, bore people with, you know, 20 minutes of babbling, but it, yeah, I just kind of like, Oh, I'm 
surprised that happened. And then I was in a mild state of shock the rest of the evening. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I have to update my books with Bram Stoker Award finalist and change it to Bram Stoker Award winner. That's kind of cool. That's got to feel good. Yeah. I mean, not many people can say they lost to Stephen King four times. Yeah. I, well, I lost Stephen King twice. Then I lost to Peter Straub. Then I lost to Jonathan Mapers. That's a pretty good string of losses. Yeah. You know, I can't, you know, well, freaking Peter Straub, what makes him so great? I know what makes him so great. <laughs> I, I understood that one. And the same year I was up against Peter Straub, I was also up against Joe Hill. So it's like, yeah, we know we know how this is going to turn out. Yeah. It's, so. it's, it's, it's good competition to lose, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you won for um, the midnight screening. Uh, what was it called? Twentieth anniversary screening. Twentieth anniversary long fiction. Awesome. So I'm still got to read that one. I've been re- I've been trying to catch up on your work because you're so prolific. I think it's like three yeah. books a year you put out, right? It it varies by year. This for the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of um, behind the scenes stuff where I'm not allowed to talk about it. So I look like I'm being a slacker and I promise I'm not, I'm actually always working, but a lot of it is stuff that is, you know, not announced yet. And so there's stuff going on. And at some point I'll be back to, you know, my gosh, he puts out a ton of books, but now it just looks like I'm vacationing and I'm really not. Now, I know you're not allowed to verbally verify this, but is there anything to do with Wolf Hunt coming out soon? Wink, wink, Morse code. There very well might be, but you're correct that I'm not allowed to Ah. verbally verify it. Dude, those books blew my mind. Like one after the other, I was up to like 5 a.m. Like I can't put these down. Like I am physically unable to put these down. (laughs) Yeah, no, I will. There is very extremely cool stuff happening with Wolf Hunt, but I'm not allowed to blab it at this point. So it might be soon. It might not be soon. I keep thinking it's going to be soon and then it never is, but someday. What is your writing process like? I mean, going to your writing a little bit. It varies with each book. And so, um, you know, whether, you know, whether I outline or don't outline depends on the book, like with 20th anniversary screening, that book is written as fake nonfiction. It's basically, it's completely made up, but it's written like it's a website article about something that actually happened. So I wanted it to be as credible as possible. So I knew the ending. I knew where everything was headed but I hadn't worked out a lot of the details. So I had a lot of fun just sort of going along and making it up as I went along with a final goal in mind. Whereas like uh, my most recent novel is Deathless. And that one, it's the sequel to Pressure and like Pressure, it's in four parts. So I knew where each part ended and began. So I had sort of a basic structure for the book. And then I filled in the gaps between that. Some books... You know, the publisher has made me do full outlines. And so if that's the case, then I, you know, a book like Dweller was fully outlined. And I'm working on um, another book that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but that was also a fairly detailed outline because that's what the publisher needed before they would send me the contract. So when you outline, is it like beat for beat or is how loose can it be? It varies usually it's the standard three to five page outline it kind of depends you know when i was writing um young adult books for source books you know the outlines got less and less details i went along because you know by the fifth book they trusted that i was going to turn in something good i'm 
have worked on a screenplay project recently. Another thing I can't talk about, but that was an insanely detailed outline. That had to be beat by beat, doing Zoom calls with the director, just going through. I adapted one of my own books, and that was, you know, probably 10 to 12 hours of a, of multiple Zoom meetings, sitting there going through the book paragraph by paragraph discussing everything before I wrote a single word of the screenplay. So I think by the time it was done, the outline was more than not quite half the length of the actual script. Wow. They just, they wanted everything. They wanted to know exactly what I was going to turn in. So do you get more notes for that or you get pretty much left on your own? Like to give you a lot of the creative freedom. Oh, no, no, no. Once the script was turned in, then it was the studio notes meeting where it's a, in real life, in pre-COVID times, they would have flown me out to Los Angeles to be in a big scary room with people glaring at me. This was done as a Zoom call, but it is, you know, you get feedback, you say, oh, how silly of me, of course you're correct, and go back and then do another fairly significant rewrite, because that's just, that's the process. Fun stuff. (laughs) Um, I think I want to talk to you last. Um, over COVID, you finished four four books. I think um, four books, one short story collection, and then a book that was uh, reprint material. But wow, yeah. Uh, do you structure like a, do you structure like a nine to five, or do you just whatever time it takes during the day is what it takes? Or how structured is it for you? It's structured from the standpoint of I kind of just get up and get to work, but it's not what I would like to get into is you know punch the clock at nine punch out at five my day is done i can enjoy the rest of the evening but it kind of is sort of an ongoing thing but it's not hardcore sitting down typing for 16 hours a day it is you know i social media takes up a lot of time emails take up a lot of time there's random goofing off there's stuff like this, which is extremely valuable, but is not actual writing time. Right. And so, you know, there's lots of stuff that goes into the writing life that isn't actually writing. And so it's sort of depending on how close the deadline is, is how much writing I'm doing. So if, you know, I have a book that's due September 1st, it's as we're recording this, it's May 26th. So that book is like a distant, you know, that barely even exists. But if we were recording this in August, I would be, you know, checking my watch constantly saying, I really kind of need to get back to work. <laughs> so it's kind of, I'm very much like the student who procrastinated on the term paper until the last minute. I can relate. <laughs> so it it's really based on, you know, what deadlines I currently have, what short stories are due, what needs to get done and what other stuff I can work on. But no, I'm not, I'm, I'm efficient from the standpoint, I pretty much work every day, unless I'm out of town at a convention or something, I'm working every day. But in terms of the, you know, sit down and work for four hours at a stretch, that doesn't really happen. It's kind of have the computer out. The laptop is open all day, but I'm not necessarily working all day. Yeah. As long as it's open, you can look at it and be like, I'm I'm still here. I'm still here. Uh, deadlines, do, do those help you? Or like, if somebody were starting out as a writer, like they don't have any official thing going on yet, would deadlines setting one for themselves be something you would recommend? Or is it something you would not like? I generally prefer to not have deadlines because every book that has a deadline is like, oh, if only I had one more week, it would be so much better. And it wouldn't. I would just, you know, by the end of that week, I'd say, oh, if only I had one more week, it'd be so much better. But so for me personally, I don't, I 
generally they're kind of annoying. But if it's a new writer who has trouble finishing a project, which was me, you know, 25 years ago. And, you know, if you get into that realm of halfway through, you're kind of sick of the book and all this other idea is so much better. I should work on that instead. And then halfway through that book, oh, this other idea is so much better. I should work on that instead. I think that self-imposed deadlines are a great thing and accountability partners are great. So telling someone, hey, I'm going to finish this book on this date and hold me to it. That's good. You know, if you have a social media following, hey, everyone, I'm planning to get this done on September 1st and give me a bunch of crap if I don't. You know, any kind of accountability can help. Not to the point where it stresses you out and impacts the quality of the final product, but thinking, you know, I kind of need to tell Chase that I didn't get my 500 words done today or whatever. That can be a helpful thing, you know, <laughs> to have someone ready to glare at you or scold you or, you know, I this is audio. We're recording yeah. this with video. So <laughs> I'm giving Jeff mean looks right now. I will now. <laughs> I will report to the people just listening that he glared at me very well. And it made me actually want to end the conversation and get back to writing. <laughs> but always so friendly to my guests. <laughs> uh, do you still utilize like writers workshop groups or is that like is that part of your writing style still? No, I do uh, I have beta readers. So every time I finish a project it goes off to about six or seven people to basically you know typo hunt continuity error hunt say hey not your best work jeff but in, i don't really workshop it in in that i don't have a meeting you know where everyone's exchanging stories and discussing it i just sort of get one-on-one -on -one feedback which is you know hey you there's a typo on page 23 or I didn't quite understand what was happening there. So it's very much a beta reader stuff, but not the critique group type thing. Oh yeah. I've only been at a couple of those and it gives you a lesson in how to take criticism without taking it personally. Like that's I think I learned from them. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe that's the point of going to those groups. I don't know. Would you say that's like a big part of it? It is. It's part of it. It's not, you know, it's hopefully you get over that quickly. So it's not like the ongoing use for them. The ongoing use is to get valuable feedback on your stuff, but it is helpful. I know in my creative writing classes the, in college, the rule was you couldn't speak while they were discussing your story. So you couldn't you know, justify why you had done something or explain something. You basically just had to sit there and take it for 20 minutes. Oh yeah. And it was, you know, it could be a humbling, it could be insanely frustrating because they would get off on a completely irrelevant tangent and you're like, no, you're, it's wrong. I didn't, that's not the symbolism I intended. Just shut up. And you just, the rule is you couldn't talk. So you just have to sit there, you know, fuming, waiting for them to get back on track. So it was helpful from that perspective. And if you're really precious about your own work, it's a, you know, it's probably a good technique to stop that mm -hmm. because you, you, you can't do that, you know, with my beta readers, I can't say, well, I'm the mighty Jeff Strand Stoker winner. And what I say is right. <laughs> it's, you know, you have to listen to the stuff. It's okay. If you didn't understand that plot point, I need to take that seriously and see if I can clarify it better. Because if re paying readers have the same problem, that's, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. I remember so, at uh, BGSU when you had to take those, because I was a creative writing major for a while before I switched oh, to theater. Oh, at BGSU? Yeah. Oh, I remember. Well, so uh, was I. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do remember that. 
Okay. Uh, have you ever seen a fist fight in those scripts? Because I have, and it was uh, it was kind of funny, kind of terrifying. Did I have never seen a fist fight? I saw one guy get really defensive and angry, and it was really uncomfortable and embarrassing to watch him. Yeah. He just he got he it enraged him that they were saying you know critis- critical things about his masterpiece, and he just he violated the don't talk rule and just fought everything that someone said. And it was like, this, this life isn't for you, sir. <laughs> the scary but thing no, about as that far is as you violence, still have to come no. back the next day. <laughs> like you have to come back and be like, I'm sorry. Yeah, he never came back and apologized. He just, never? Nope. Oh man. Is he a best-selling author now? I'm sure he never published a work in his life. Uh, I didn't, this was a, you know, it's, I haven't been in college for a very long time. And so I oh, didn't actually, I didn't actually go back and, you know, research what he had accomplished. He might be, you know, you know, he might be a multi-million dollar bestseller because he refused to compromise his creative vision. But my <laughs> guess is he never published anything. Uh, um, for reading, like how often do you read? Like what kind of authors do you read? Let me start with that. I read the same uh, kind of stuff I write. So I'm a you know, big horror fan. I don't read anywhere near as much as I hope to. I, you know, I think you need to read as, you know, if I were, when I stand in front of middle grade students talking to them about writing, I'm always, no, you have to read. You can't write if you don't read. But then I go back and don't read anywhere near as much as I should. I'm actually, the book I'm in the process of reading is called You've Got Read on You, which is a behind the scenes look at the making of Shaun of the Dead. (laughs) That's so sweet. really interesting book but you know i no i read a lot and i read um mostly horror fiction by my friends but i don't read anywhere near as much as i should or want to hey reading subtitles on netflix kind of counts it should (laughs) a lot of times i don't watch stuff with subtitles because i have to pay attention a lot of my tv watching is also during meals so it's hard to you know be having dinner while also because with subtitles, you have to be looking at the screen the whole time. And otherwise, I can sort of multitask eating dinner and watching something at the same time. But and I don't object people... to subtitles. If I'm in a theater, I don't mind subtitles at all. Oh, yeah. Um, where can people find you next? Like, when's your next um, signing? My next event is, um, I have to check my calendar. I believe it is Imaginarium, which is a convention in um, Kentucky. And you know what? I can pull up my calendar right now and give you better details i put you right it on is, the spot i'm sorry about it that. is friday july 8th through july 10th it is in louisville kentucky it's a three-day horror fantasy science fiction i think other genres convention other guests are ellen datlow michael nost uh, lynn hansen bridget nelson elizabeth donald a bunch of other people and it, i've never been to this convention before but it should be a lot of fun so. sweet and uh, if anybody wants to find jeff your website is jeffstrain.com correct Yes, that is correct. Look him up. If you haven't read him, I highly recommend him. I, I start with Pressure for sure. That is, I think, my intro. I think it was Pressure or Dweller I read first. But regardless, find Jeff Strand. Look up his work. He's all over the internet, on Amazon, the website. He's got paperbacks, ebooks. Check it out. And some of them are actually fairly short. So if you want to give it a shot, I think... Um, uh, what was they're it? all fairly short i'm not a i don't do doorstop novels i'd love to someday you know do my 800 page epic but my stuff tends to max out it i think my longest novel ever is eighty six thousand words which is fairly short so what? i tend <laughs> so 
So I tend to go more of the 60 to 70,000 range. So yeah, they're quick reads. Oh, that's so short. I feel bad, like 40,000 words. What the hell? <laughs> anyway, check out Jeff Strand, Bram Stoker Award winner. Please, please, please check him out. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Chase Will. I quickly wanted to let you know my first young adult novel, Moving Through, is now available on Amazon.com and at chasewill.com slash shop. Moving Through follows a group of high school seniors who are mourning the death of a mentor while starting a school-wide rebellion. Sex, prom night, and the world's most disastrous talent show are just a few of the attractions in their private hell. But with a little help from their friends, they may glue the pieces of their shattered world together into a weapon worth wielding. Hope you check it out. Thank you.